I'm going to be completely honest with you. I'm really tired and a little bit brain dead. And I know that we're going to forget 30 things. Well, you know, we made like four road trips. So I think at this point, it's more or less down to a science. You know, we have a house that are lined up. So that's a big thing right there. Well, you've done the calculations on space in the car. So how many bags are we allowed each? Well, I think we were able to strong arm my parents into lending us their Subaru, so I think that we're okay to each bring two and a half bags. Don't ask me what a half bag is. It's not an exact science. Uh, okay, does that count my computer bag or like my first aid kit or my toiletries bag? That's definitely a half bag. The, the, for the computer bag is a half bag for okay, sure. Okay, let me just make sure that the bag of zip ties that I keep in the glove compartment is restocked. I think that it might not be a good idea to travel with zip ties anymore. I think they've acquired kind of an unsavory connotation on account of the whole uh, insurrection thing. They just make me feel more secure. Okay, uh, let's see. What else do we have here? Okay, Vicky's going to come and water my plants for me. Brigitte's going to come and water the garden while I'm gone. Oh my god, who's going to take care of the cats? We have cats. Is that the doorbell? Yep. Uh, All right. Hey, Tito. What up? Man, what's going on? You called me earlier, so I'm coming over. Oh, yeah, I spaced. <laughs> you want to get some lunch? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm down. I'm, I'm actually pretty hungry. Where do you want to go? You know what? I haven't had Peruvian in a long time, and yeah. there's a little spot over on the Quebec side. Amazonas? Yeah. Yeah, I could I could eat some Lomo de Saltado. Yeah, let's do it. Is that okay, Nicole? Okay, yeah, let's take a break. Okay, yeah, that sounds good to me. Podemos sentar por allá? Okay, yeah, gracias. Yeah, okay, we can sit over here. Wow, it's been forever since I've been in here. I, I think I've only been in here once. It was like 2016. I got a whole thing about how Peruvian restaurants in Canada are not as good as Peruvian restaurants in Peru, but I guess that is just a thing about restaurants generally. But I'm still excited. Can we get like two liters of Inca Cola? They only have them in two liter bottles, so we're each getting one. Well, what? Oh, <laughs> <gross>. <laughs> I'll just have a water. Thanks. No, Vaquero up, man. <laughs> Well, at least the menu's not too complicated. What are you going to get, Tito? I need to have a ceviche. It's getting warmer, and I just need some fish. I What's thi- that one with the tuna and potatoes? That's a causa. Yeah, get me a causa. Yeah. Anybody want to split a causa? No, uh, you guys and your fish, if I wanted to eat ceviche, i just go to your house, Tito. I'm going to get some lomo de saltado. Is that oh, how you right. say that? Am I reading the menu right? Yeah, lomo saltado. Oh, that day is in there unnecessarily. Okay, will you order for all of us? Yeah, 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 okay. Okay, vamos a ordenar. Uh, yo voy a tomar un ceviche, uh, un causa y un. Uh, what did you get? Ají de gallina? No. No, but you know what? Oh, yeah, that yeah, really that is good. what I want. That's actually yeah. better. Yeah. Nada de huevos. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. yeah. No huevos. Es canadiense. Okay. Well, that was really fast. Well, it's never that busy in here. Yeah, this place is great. Thanks for thinking this place up, Tito. Yeah, it's a little home away from home. So we're sitting here for the inaugural Operation G's episode of our podcast, Run With Us, with Tito, who didn't know that he was going to be on a podcast today. So how are you feeling about that, Tito? (laughs) A little nervous, actually. Kind of threw me for a loop uh, that we were doing this. You'll probably feel a little bit more nervous when you discover that Hugh wants to ask you to cat sit for us for four months. (laughs) You're blowing it, bro. You can't. It's not cool to just spring that on somebody. 
You know I'm allergic. <laughs> yeah, but you, you love cats. Do you not love cats? My nose does. What a deal. What a deal, Tito. How can you say Mother that? A vice and beer, probably. <laughs> you know you won't do that. You're not going to Tom Sawyer me into this again. No, uh, it's an earnest request. All right, yeah, 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 I'll do it. I'll do it. I like cats. I am deathly... Not deathly allergic. I just get quite sniffly, but you, I like cats. You could just leave the dish on the porch. You don't even need to come into the house, so it'll like minimize your cat exposure overall. How many cats do you actually have? There's two, but one kind of takes care of himself, and we'll be sure to get you the automatic feeder, so you like don't really need to be down in their stuff that often. That would be great. It's actually kind of a weird story about the one cat, our neighbor who lives next to us. It, like one day when I was brushing the snow off the car in the winter, he came up to me and he was like, I have a confession. And I was like what and he's like i've been feeding leaf which is one of our cats and i was like oh that's fine and i treated it like it was a very casual thing because i was like you know he's an older guy he doesn't live with anyone or he didn't then and so i thought it might just be nice for him to have a cat around from time to time but then come the hour come the day i haven't seen our cat in like weeks you know, I mean, once in a while, we'll catch a glimpse of him, like, going through the snow, but he basically just lives over there now, and I don't know what to say, and Nicole is like, you gotta go over and talk to our neighbor because he's stolen our cat, and we actually, recently, he renamed his Wi-Fi network after the cat, which felt like a little aggressive. Next level I mean, cat napping. That is the next stage of, of cat stealing. Yeah, you take somebody's cat, then you name your Wi-Fi after him? I'm concerned. So the downside is we may have lost a cat, but it's good news for you because you mostly only have to feed Casper. Well, my nose thanks you. Half of it anyways. <laughs> so we should so introduce we should. Tito for our podcast listeners. Tito is one of our dear friends. He was one of my groomsman i was one of his groomsmen we both live in ottawa and we enjoy grilling and also reading theory actually only tito likes reading theory i'm an illiterate i don't even know that i am reading good theory i just read things and i think about them this is crucial to me you tell me about them and i don't have to read them and that's really like i've been skating by on that for years and i don't think anybody knows how little reading i actually do tito will tell you about it and then you'll just spend an hour saying how it's wrong <laughs> Well, he's been reading a lot of Marxists lately. Yeah, it's like a real critical discourse you guys got going. I'm like on the Russian Revolution right now, and I'm like moving on, and he was trying to recommend me be anarchist, so I, I need to start reading. But do the anarchists even write anything? Like, Yeah, well, both Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman were in the Russian Revolution, and they were traveling around, and they were native Russian speakers, and so they wrote memoirs after the fact, one called The Bolshevik Myth, and the other one called My Disillusionment in Russia, that are really like damning accounts of the revolution and how ordinary peasants who could tell that Emma Goldman could speak Russia approached her and were like, please send help because things were so fucked. And meanwhile, the Bolsheviks were bringing in all kinds of international communists that didn't speak Russian who were like fed better food than the Russian peasants and workers were eating and like treated like celebrities and dining with the highfalutin Bolshevik officials. And they were all like, wow, communism's great. Meanwhile, you know, people were starving and being killed by the Red Army all over Russia. We're getting a little bit into the weeds here. We have some, like, general podcast questions that we're going to try to ask everyone on every episode of this podcast. And the first one is, what do you think is a representative anecdote about yourself that, like, will give people a sense of your general deal? It's so hard. Like, I don't like just talking about myself. But I know that, like, I have a few, like, I went to England once with my brother. He was Moneybags, who brought us there on his, like, military money. I went to Northern England. Where was it again? Whitby? No, Derby. No? No. 
Grimsby. Grimsby, yeah, yeah. Oh, the other Grimsby. Yeah, and I went to like a Turkish restaurant. Like we were hammered. Like we've been, we were hammered the entire time we were in England, <laughs> and so we had like been hammered in London, taken the train, hammered all the way north up north, and then we just like went around to different restaurants and like beer for one thing is just like extra cheap over there. We were at this one Turkish restaurant with a friend, and it was a good restaurant. You know, we were having like kebabs, and there was a Spanish bartender, like a from Spain, Spanish. You know, has like kind of the the lispy Spanish accent. Espanol. We were like talking with the owner and then the owner was talking to him and he looked like he was being kind of condescended to. And then the owner left. This was like the end of the day and we were like still with the, the bartender and we were just like talking and we had started talking about work. You know, like how was work? You seemed kind of tense and I just kind of like listened to what he was saying and according to my brother, I basically like helped him create like an insurrection at work because he started talking about how disappointed he was. He was wanted to be friends with his boss because they were friends and then he just started treating him like an employee and then he kept going on just talking about their strained relationship wow what a reversal of roles that like you are helping this bartender process when usually it's the other way around yeah and he like (laughs) at the, the last thing he said was like it's not about the money he's like it's about the respect and then my brother was like, "Ah, oh, fuck! Look what you've done!" It's like now nah, this place is closed. This place is closing because really of you. Crossing a line there. Yeah, yeah. And that's, apparently, it did close right after that. I don't think. I don't think. Oh I don't think for that. But I just think like I don't know. Anyway, like the main point is, I'm fairly good at listening to people. I like being able to relay stories back when they're like telling me their stuff. I like to drink. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I like to talk about work conditions because I'm also a union steward. So kind of all like mixes in in that anecdote. Yeah, well, Hugh and I talk about this a fair bit. We talk about what kind of people have important discussions at bars because it often becomes a scene in the comics we're making. And I'm often like, buddy, we're like, we shouldn't put sorry to call you buddy again we shouldn't put bar scenes in books right like if it's a book that could be in a school or whatever but we recently had a comic about labor issues and it did just make sense you know it's like so many labor discussions happen in bars yeah and i mean it's not just any union it's for a grad student and adjunct faculty union so i just like had a hard time imagining those conversations taking place anywhere but the campus pub right so look for that wherever our fine comics are distributed for free on the internet i always like those memes too where it's like it's like oh i don't really i don't get all too political and it's like three drinks later it's a map of syria or something (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that's my favorite one of all of the i swear i won't get politicals because like the implication is that you're like all under Kurdistan. <laughs> Is that our food? Can we split them? They're nice sizes for individuals, but I want to like take a little bit of yours. So are you cool with sharing? Just get know. some platitos. Yeah. All right, fine. I guess this is a tapas bar now. <laughs> we can get more if we want to. It's a good point. I just, I'm not that keen on fish, so. I'm just going to take yours then. <laughs> I'm just going to take your food. Wow. Expropriated. <laughs> Well, I don't want to get right into it, other than getting right into this ahi de gallina, but why don't we start with one of the smaller podcast questions, which is, how do you think society is going to collapse? That is not a small question, you. Let's just transition into the end of the world. Like, like conversation, you know, we talk about it all the time. That's a hard question to answer, Hugh. I think I need to be in, like, a proper setting to be able to talk about it. Well, like, where? So for me, I, I want to go to one of my childhood favorite places, another Peruvian food place uh, in New York. It's called Bajo el Puente, means under the bridge. And I think we should go there. I thought you said that it closed in the 90s. It did. That's uh, actually fine because uh, we have magic on this podcast. And we can just, yeah, just go anywhere, do oh. anything. 
and now I'm hearing, oh, I'm hearing that New York train. I think I heard this exact train on Illmatic. Yeah, it's like the it's like the set of In Living Color. And look, and there's some authentic 1990s New York graffiti. This is amazing, guys. There's a, there's a lot of neon, fellas. I don't know. Look at those old puffy jackets and those actual Tims. You know what's funny about those puffy jackets is that I don't even know when they hit New York, like maybe the late 80s, early 90s, but when I moved to Illinois in 1995, they were like the new thing. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, did we just dine and dash at Amazonas by traveling back in time, or are we going to have to go back later and eat a second Peruvian dinner? Segundo is going to kill me. You know what? Let's just order again. Okay, all right. We're at this new restaurant. We've gone back in time to the '90s. Help me out. Uh, how do you think society is gonna collapse? <laughs> Shit. I gotta open my Inca Cola. Hold on a sec. How do I think society is gonna collapse? Uh, I think it's gonna be barely imperceptible in areas that are fairly—I don't want to say the word privileged, but like in areas that are comfortable. And I think it's gonna be just slowly sucking for er like everybody else. So, do you mean that society is already collapsing? Because that feels like—I mean, I think society is like a big question, and we're talking as right. individuals, right? Yeah. So it's like in my individual space, it won't seem so immediate, but in other people's, it'll be like a whole—you know—their whole life will change. Either like there won't be any jobs where they are and there won't be anything for them to do so it's like i either have to move and change everything or kind of the sense of danger you know like my family comes from peru you know in the late 80s and early 90s it felt like a bit of a collapse there you know there was hyperinflation there was a revolutionary movement that the government was repressing and also repressing the population could you talk a little bit about the shining path for our listeners so the shining path are, were a maoist rebellion that came about after the failed attempts at land reform from the previous military government the real rough outline of the story is that they you know kind of tried to organize the peasantry outside of the main cities and then tried to encircle the cities. And then they uh, kind of did, they did do acts of what would be considered terrorism. So they would bomb, you know, houses, they would bomb government buildings, uh, they would assassinate people. The government would at the same time also start repressing communities. Anybody who was a student, you know, could be targeted, could be tagged as a communist. So the, the government was responsible for quite a few atrocities around that time too. Massacres and jails. And so it was tense time for everybody. Um, Civil society didn't, you know, they were too afraid to talk. So the one issue with The Shining Path was they didn't really entertain anything that wasn't their permanent war. Anything that was sort of, you know, uh, LGBTQ people asking for rights or indigenous people kind of being independent. It was, they were pretty well shut out of it or they would be considered counter-revolutionary. So it was very, very quiet for the public while at the same time, you know, massacres were happening, people were being disappeared, people were being put into jail. So like stuff like repression, I mean, I don't think it's going to look exactly like that. But I think for sure, there will be kind of a chilling people will be kind of afraid to speak. Again, for some people, it will be barely imperceptible because it won't change. But mm -hmm. for others, I think they feel indignant, but they won't be they you know, they might not be able to do anything about it or have to do it in a clandestine way. Or like people who lived in Peru don't not everybody from that time necessarily has all the details of what was going on. Right. And people were just trying to live their lives. Like I was hearing this story recently about the collapse of the USSR in Moscow and this guy who was in Moscow at the time just couldn't help but notice like, an old woman walking down the street with her groceries just like stepping over bodies and you know to her it was just like she just needs to go to the grocery store you know like <laughs> life just needs to go on even when there's crazy things happening around you 
Yeah, yeah. And just like trying to make it normal. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that you you might only imagine that it is a collapse after the fact. You know, it's like, oh, wow, that actually was bad. But I didn't notice it at the time because I was just too busy trying to make it. I guess I'm skeptical that it won't come here, though, because at the end of the day, right, we live at the imperial core and our comfortable standard of living is really dependent on hyper exploitation in the rest of the world. And so if institutions of civil society start to break down in the rest of the world, then it'll gradually affect or affect, sorry, the cheap flow of consumer goods into the West or like cheap raw materials that we use to manufacture things or like, I don't know, the whole complex web of the global economy where things are shipped from Latin America to China and then manufactured and shipped here. But like, I don't necessarily think of like an authoritarian phase of governments as being a collapse as much of a narrowing of social life. Sure. But when I talk about like a collapse, I mean, like where governments can't even sustain themselves because they lose their tax base and their labor base and they're unable to attain the necessary resources and the conditions are so generalized that it's not just like another government takes in. Because right now that's what happens is if a government becomes destabilized to a certain point, then one imperial power or another moves in. Right. But I think that if the conditions of collapse become generalized, then there won't be an imperial hegemon of like moving in on anybody and it'll just be like a total collapse but i can see that i have biased this question because it assumes <laughs> that there will be a total collapse as yeah that's not what i'm thinking <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm thinking like a, i'm thinking a localized but, but again like i'm thinking this is 1990 whatever new york city it's already happening that's what neoliberalism is that's what austerity cuts are you know this is the collapse of society even just margaret thatcher saying there is no society like i consider that to be a part of a long extended collapse but i do think that we'll see spasms in different parts of the world like what happened in peru where you have a destabilized government and you have a militarized force that is trying to wage war against it man this ajita gallina is better than the ajita gallina at amazonas yeah i got the childhood plate it's called the uh, pescado and cebollado peru's on the coast so you have to have fish and i don't know why i take you here Hugh, if you don't have the fish but it's good well you know there's more to peruvian cuisine than fish there's also potatoes this brings me to the point that I want to ask about collapse. And I don't know how much time you spend thinking about this, Tito, but what do you imagine in terms of people's food or the environment? You know, that's like a part of our social experience as people. So is that a thing that you ever think about? It just feels like it would be boring is what would happen mm. because we wouldn't be getting like the food that we would normally get that's shipped from everywhere else. And so it would be like, what's normally made here? Are we just getting corn and beans? Beans. Just eating corn and beans I mean, every day. <laughs> that's basically Peru anyway, though. <laughs> it just has fish. <laughs> Thinking about those beans. No, but we have fish here, too. I mean, corn, beans, yeah. squash, fish. It's not the worst wild game. Definitely no more avocados in these parts. That's for sure. No coffee, no chocolate. I do worry about large-scale, more futuristic food operations, like food towers or like compounds or communes that would get set up where people would be making food. Because I do think that if we get to that point, about things being collapsed, collapsed. I think that people would have to worry about those resources being graded or or like needing to defend those resources like some people do in different parts of the world. Or people would just have to, they would have to be dependent on some other power, which there's your tax base. Yeah, in which case it's not a total collapse. Maybe I'm a little bit pessimistic or depending on your point of view about industrial civilization and whether or not its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. I guess maybe I'm a little optimistic in thinking that there's going to be a collapse in the not so distant future. But rather than dwell indefinitely on collapse, I do have like a whole sheet full of questions I want to get through. Wait, but I want to, I feel like there's a term for that sort of thing. Is it millenarian? Is that what I'm thinking of? Yeah. Like you think of the collapse as an entire thing all mm -hmm. at once, whereas I feel like it just isn't like that. 
that's like different in different areas. Yeah, 100%. Okay, sorry. No, no, I think that that's probably true. This is a great discussion about the collapse of the Roman Empire, which is a theme that we're going to return to on this podcast again and again, although maybe not in this episode, which is that uh, historians can't agree about when the Roman Empire collapsed. And there's like literally a thousand year date range, depending on how you want to frame the question, although generally people think it's the fifth century. Anyway, yes, and I'm very underqualified to be talking about that. So, yeah. I'd say if you're eating trays of baked mice drizzled in honey like Romans were in Roman era Britain, I'd, I'd call that peak society. That's not a society I want to live Just in. Just some honey drizzled mice. Man, I'm eating. Delicious. Stop talking to me about mice. You wrecked my lunch. Anyway, on that cheerful note. This is not just a podcast question, it's also a real-life question that you know I've asked you dozens of times before and will keep asking until you eventually say yes, and that is, will you come live on a commune with us? So, no. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Man, again! Is always my answer to that question. No, sorry. Why not? Well, I have a job right now, right? Like, I have a house, I have bills. I feel no reason to leave. Like, I have links to a community. I work, and I do organizing at work. And, like, I had time to think about it since the last time you asked me. And it's kind of like, you know, it's like if you were to leave the Matrix, would you just go and have fun in Zion, like, just by yourself? While, like, the Matrix is a thing that's still existing? Is that what it's called, Zion? Yeah, yeah, it's like the, yeah. I didn't know that. They went pretty literal with the name, yeah. I mean, yeah, of course I would. Fuck the Matrix. (laughs) But what's keeping you? Like, what kind of organizing are you doing? You mentioned something at work. I'm not going to say where I work because I'm actually legally bound not to say it. But I'm a public servant and I do organizing within the union there. And so we're made up of a bunch of different public service jobs. Our contract is actually expiring fairly soon. So there have been murmurs of different people kind of realizing that organizing is something that you need to do in this workplace. But people, you know, a lot of public servants that I know just aren't very used to it. So it's been an interesting learning experience. Historically, what have the levels of militancy and engagement been in the union? Very low. (laughs) (laughs) And what would you say the politics are of like a typical member? Like people are happy to be in a union, but does it go any further than that? Or are people union conscious? I think some people are. I, I mean, I think unions also played into this role too, where they see it as like a triple A membership. It's like a membership where you get services. And if you don't get it, that, that means it's not doing well. The metaphor you're supposed to use is that it's like a gym membership. A gym membership, you own the membership, but it doesn't actually work unless you actually use it yourself. The only way I was ever able to get people interested in doing stuff with the union was like I had to actually like bring an issue that people were interested in and then get them to like help me fix the problem. So generally, though, the union is just like a thing that's on the side, right? You just pay your dues. We have benefits that come with it. I was an Ottawa government worker for a minute. I got that 5% discount to Mark's Work Warehouse. <laughs> yeah, I got a 10% off a, rent, a car rental. Really? That's a fine deal. I think it was 10% at the time. I think also they did 10% off of the train, off the VRL rail for a little while. I think you were telling me recently that you kind of had a discussion with some of your coworkers about getting more engaged with the union and you like did a thing. But now I forget what that thing was. So yeah. tell me the thing. Yeah, that was really cool. So a couple of my coworkers have been pretty interested in their wages and how like it hasn't changed over the years. They had come to the union kind of asking this sort of question, but no one had ever really entertained it. And I was relatively new at coming to this job. And so I wanted to listen to what they were doing. And we just started meeting for an hour every week. We would just talk about the issue and think of what we could do. And we started putting our ideas together. And then at the same time, have you guys heard of labor notes? Yeah. Uh, Not the Solidarity Choir in Vancouver. (laughs) 
No. <laughs> no, not that one. Please explain to me. Labor Notes is like a labor union advisory organization. They help train people in unions and they help mm. them like try to be a little bit more militant and democratic in their union, like how to build a caucus, how to like deal with apathy in the workplace. So, I, you know, in working with my colleagues, I, I convinced them to join it with me. And because we're in COVID times, we did it through Zoom. And that was really cool because they actually got to attend and it was pretty eye-opening for them. Yeah, what were they like after? What did they say? It just clicked a lot of things that were in their head. Mm. Because before, again, they thought it was like a AAA membership where we just have to tell the union to do this and then they're going to do it. But then they realized it's like, that's not actually how it works. Like, you have to do it and you have to talk to people and then get them on your side and then figure out who will help you on the issue and like who might oppose you and you have to actually map it out. You have to map out like a campaign and figure out like, okay, who can like actually change this thing that we want changed and how do we put pressure on them with a government union it's a bunch of different levels it could be the legislature it could be upper management at one level Mm -hmm. because upper management has to relay this information Mm -hmm. but at the same time because it's you know we're in the government the treasury board signs the budget so they have to approve how much money they're going to allocate to public servants this kind of power mapping it's so valuable and it also is surprisingly rare with organizers i'm just thinking of how many trotskyists i've heard who have brought a resolution to like an ndp convention <laughs> it's just like buddy you don't know how things work around here yeah, I have an idea for you and your coworkers. Have you considered getting some cardboard and some sticks and then some Sharpies and writing your demands on the sticks and waving them at the parliament buildings, even though that's not the level of government you work for? I think that could really work. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many times people just do that anyway. Yeah, like I've been to marches in my union and they will march all the way to Parliament Hill. And it's like, why are we here? Brutal. <laughs> it would not surprise me. I've lived in Ottawa my whole life. So So these were people who were already slightly involved with the union or who were just union members. And this is what has politicized them or activated them. The wage issue was the thing that politicized them. Interestingly, with one of them, one of my coworkers had worked there for 30 years. And during that time, there were a a few strikes that had happened. And she had actually crossed the picket line. She had actually crossed the picket line like years ago. And as a result of that, she wouldn't interact with anybody. Like she would work on her own. Yeah, I bet. I bet you would feel like a different type of person. But then I guess something recently just kind of clicked. Like she had worked for so long in that position. And then she realized doing all that work, working all the extra hours, because they rely on you working over your hours to get your numbers right. And she just realized that it didn't really result in anything. You know, there wasn't really any special prize at the end of it management would change so they would just forget what she was doing anyway. This ties back to what you opened this with, which is that sometimes I think people just need somebody to hear them and then they'll connect the dots. Like with this woman, she's just like, this isn't really working for me. I think good union organizing is just listening for the most part. You're just like listening, reframing what they're saying and then trying to like, you don't have the, I don't have the answer like most of the time. I don't know what the answer is, but hearing the problem will like help stimulate that question in your mind and then you kind of try to come up with different solutions or maybe ask somebody else it's like the first step i don't have the ready answer i think that too makes people feel better because they don't feel alone right because they do feel a little like i don't know how to solve this problem but it makes them feel better that oh there's somebody here who wants to listen to me and who might help me but they're not gonna do all the work we're gonna do it together yeah we were talking about this recently in another context how people always fall prey to this thing of like if there's an organization that they're supposed to be a participant in 
they're very prone to thinking of it as an organization that fixes problems for them. And it's kind of like endemic whenever you try and do social organizing that you need to be very careful not to set yourself up as a problem solver mm -hmm. or else people will treat you like that's your job and they just come to you kind of like you were saying with the union. Can you pass me the bottle of Coca-Cola there? You know what? I'm just going to have a sip, if that's okay. I never want enough to justify a two-liter bottle, but I will have three fingers of Inca-Cola, please. You have to drink it fast, because it will go flat okay, very quickly. Well, that's fucking sweet, and I can understand why you wouldn't want to abandon that, and also your family, and your friends. And your bills. You mentioned your bills. <laughs> Did I mention my family? I feel like I might have not mentioned it, and I feel it would have been really insensitive. When you said bills, family was implied. <laughs> oh, priorities, huh? But what I was going to say was, if you did, for whatever reason, abandon all your responsibilities and sweet organizing to come live on a commune, where would you want it to be? What part of the world? What kind of ecosystem? Yeah, yeah, like where would it be? If I just could choose anything, I would love something that's not too hot and not too cold. <laughs> the Goldilocks zone. <laughs> whatever that is, I could do with a little colder. Uh, I was born in Canada. I'm used to this now. Like, I can be somewhere that's kind of, like, a little bit chilly, but, like, I don't like to sweat. I was looking at houses in Central California today, and I found out that either of us could buy a house in Sacramento quite comfortably, or Stockton, or any one of those other mediocre Central California cities that n nobody especially wants to live in. If you're listening to this, Jake, I'm sorry for saying mean things about Sacramento. What you're saying is that you don't want to end up on, like, a fruit farm in Peru. <laughs> <laughs> Just covered in mosquitoes. Or, no, I, I I mean, I would love to go to Peru because Peru can be fairly cold. It's not super warm all the time. Right. That makes sense. Especially if you're up north. As soon as the sun goes away, you actually have to, like, wear a jacket or something. I can deal with that. Oh, man. I can just, like, wear a suit all day for whatever reason. Or, like, a nice coat. Just, like, Tito in a full-body windbreaker <laughs> on a moisture farm in Highlands Desert, Peru. <laughs> fellas, fellas, if it's in Peru, it's got to be a llama fur coat. Do llamas have fur hair? Wool. Llama wool. wool. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. they're so soft, but mm -hmm. then they spit on you and you regret it. Okay, so something temperate, perhaps something with a llama or an alpaca, or at least some wool. Any other defining features? I don't like the idea of like a hippie commune, which is like the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of a commune, which is like a one shared space. I feel like it smells bad. I think like it should be, I don't know, I'm pretty <laughs> suburban, I guess. Like I grew up in Ottawa, so it's like I'm used to being in like a small house, being like separated, but close to other people, but just like separated at least by a house. So we have our own like private space. This makes me want to create a game for this podcast, like a boundaries game. <laughs> where it's like a lightning round where we ask our guests whether or not something is over their boundaries. Like, no doors in a house. How do you feel about no doors in a house? I would want a door. I'd want a door. <laughs> what about mandatory hugs? <laughs> toothbrush sharing? Who shared toothbrushes? Like that's uh... Nicole and I share a toothbrush. It's all about oh, the fact that we're both very lazy. That's really all it comes down to. Because I remember when we first got on the road, I would pack a toiletries bag, and Hugh would just assume that all of his stuff was in that toiletries bag, and it just eventually ended up that we had one toothbrush. And since then, we haven't cared. Oh my god. I just rather smell like a girl, you know, so I don't know why I would pack 
gun flavored deodorant or whatever it is, right? Like, uh, it's timber and it's a perfectly acceptable scent. Nicole would rather smell like a dude and I would rather smell like a girl, which is why she bought me Britney Spears's Obsession, I think. It actually called. smells pretty good. It I'm smel- into it. It smells incredible. I smell beautiful whenever I wear it. We keep a rotation of toothbrushes, but that's due to our own shared apathy in a situation. I don't think the idea that there would be any of these instituted kind of like good vibes rules is exactly the type of stereotype about communes that I hope to smash. Well, okay, how did that whole stereotype come to be in the first place? Uh, probably the back to the land movement, which we should talk about at some point on the show. I'd love to do a couple of history episodes because, of course, there's the back to the land movement in the 60s and 70s, but even before that, if you look at some of the 19th century utopian communes mm. that they had in the United States in particular, there's definitely some eternal recurrence in left wing people trying to establish utopias in the countryside. I was visiting my mom and my grandma in Lawrence, Kansas a couple of years ago, and I was in an office, I think to get a massage, and somebody just had like a Kansas Historical Society journal on the coffee table in the waiting room, and I read this whole piece that was a historical account of a utopian silkworm farm in rural Kansas from the 1870s and 1880s. I think they fell apart in the 1890s. And it was, it was wild, you know, and it was entirely based around everybody's going to live here. It's going to be egalitarian. We're going to have this cottage industry where we're bringing silkworms over from China. We're going to start the silkworm revolution in the United States. And I think we all know how that ended up. This will probably also recur from episode to episode. Nicole and I have talked a lot about this, and we both feel like it's too intimate all at once for human beings to try and live collectively. Before I go on, I actually had a thing I wanted to say about why there's this stereotype about communes being hippy-dippy, and I think that's survivor bias. There are people that still live on communes they moved to in the 60s, and they love it there, and the people who, like, came back into society and wrote plays and movies and TV episodes about hippie communes are the people that it didn't work for, and so there's probably, like, an element of mean-spirited caricature at play, although I'm sure it's not totally mean-spirited caricature, because I've lived in collective houses in the cities that, that had similar dynamics, but... I definitely think that we're better off living as neighbors in separate houses in like a little village because we're all socialized to be very individualistic and trying to like govern absolutely everything in common and sharing absolutely all of our most intimate space as a first generation thing. We're probably just not capable of that kind of cooperation or like I'm skeptical that most people could do it. I like the idea of it also being like a transitionary thing. We're like totally ill suited to this growing up in neoliberalism. I like the idea of like a housing co-op and like that's like in the city and I could go and still work and do my organizing at work. I can go back and it would be like directly democratic, well-organized. I have my own toothbrush. I do feel that like a, a transitionary period is probably a good thing. It just makes sense to me because it's too much all at once. But while we're like living in the realm of the fantastic for a minute and not grimly diagnosing ourselves as terminally individualistic, here is a fun question. What kind of house would you want to live in? Like, would you want to live in a big, spooky, gothic mansion that we buy or like a converted insane asylum? (laughs) I'm so bad at these questions because I grew up in like the same kind of housing. I have very little imagination for like a kind of space that I would prefer. Man, that's a hard question. Like, I could live probably in a bunker. But I need like windows, (laughs) you know, or like I need fresh air to come in. And like, I like natural light. 
So, like, I wouldn't mind it being, like, a house in the country. I was, like, thinking maybe an apartment would be good. Yeah, like, I, I don't know. I'm pretty adaptable. Like, I can live in a cardboard box and I'll be fine. <laughs> how do you feel about, like, we talked about living in the same space, but how do you feel about being up in your neighbor's life? I really love that kind of, like, apartment courtyard dynamic where it's like you're running into your neighbor's friends mm-hmm. and your neighbors who are drying their laundry and... This guy who's coming home from work and has stories to tell and wants you to hang out with him while he's rolling his cigarette. That's a fun time in my mind. It's it's unpredictable and social, pro-social. Like, like Coronation Street, but cool. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like this gets at the idea that people have in their minds about living on a commune, which is that it is 10,000 miles away from anywhere mm-hmm. and it's in the woods and it's just a matter of time before somebody is turning into Jack Nicholson from The Shining. <laughs> And I think that we framed it that way a little by opening with a question about the collapse. And definitely, I fantasize about living on a commune specifically because I have collapse anxiety and like super severe climate anxiety. And it's a way for me to manage my climate anxiety to imagine that I live in a wet, geologically stable place that's remote from civilization. But then when I think about what it would be like to move and raise a kid in that place now, I feel like I need to have 50 of my friends there with me. And so that's why we're literally going to drive across North America and then fly to Europe and ask every person we see if they will live in the woods with us. Oh my god. You get a lot of no's there, Hugh. You get a lot of no's. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. But sometimes an idea just needs to percolate in people's minds. And also, I am relatively confident that society is going to collapse. And I want people to know that there's somewhere they can go to be safe when I, that happens. I do concede that a lot of my hesitance towards it, too, is that I block out those questions in my mind sometimes about, like, environmental collapse. It's not that I don't think about them. But, like, I just push it to the side where, I like, I think of other more immediate things. Well, and how interesting is it to think about how we talk as if we're in a rush to move out to a commune, but the really important pivotal points of commune life in the past has been, can you sustain what you start? It's not about how quickly you can Mm -hmm. start. And so there's a part of me that feels like a lot of other things can be imperfect, but I would like there to be a project that I'm involved in that lasts for the years ahead when people start to feel like they need to distance themselves a little bit from what's happening. (laughs) What we're saying is we'll be waiting for you in 5, 10, 15 years. Can I go on a little tangent? I'm just curious. Yeah. Is a kibbutz, like an Israeli kibbutz? Kibbutz. kibbutz is that like a commune? Yeah, yeah. it absolutely was. In I would fact, love to talk with somebody who grew up mm-hmm. on a kibbutz. Yeah. And it would have to be like a baby boomer because they were big yeah. in the 70s. Yeah. But yeah, for a while, the Israeli left was the darling of the international left because of the kibbutzes as like a model of communal life. But then that started to change in the 80s with the intifada and stuff. I don't remember when the first intifada was. And by I don't remember, I mean, I wasn't born yet. Mm-hmm. But I do know that at least there was a time when kibbutzes were quite fashionable on the left because they were these neat experiments in collective living that represented this radical impulse. But then they also, on the flip side, had this rugged settler, not individualism, but communalism to them, where some of them were built in occupied territories, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. all of it's occupied, but there would be like this hostility to everybody that you live around because they are, you know, the other, the enemy Palestinians. That's a dynamic that we're going to get into on the podcast, too. We haven't really talked about it yet, and I think that we'll probably try and have that conversation if we can find an indigenous person who's interested in having it with us. But, you know, we live in North America, and these are also settler societies, and when you talk about going back to the land, that's somebody else's land, even if you buy it. 
And mm. Nicole and I are mindful of that. And we're thinking in a long way about what's an ethical way to navigate that. But I don't think that there's anything like inherently less ethical about being a settler who lives in the country than a settler that lives in the city. And that it's more about like what you do and what kind of relationships you build and how you make the resources you have accessible to the people whose land it originally is. I'm just interested in not being separate from people and their lives and their struggles. I want to still live in a commune and be able to connect with people and help them solve their problems. I don't like the idea of it being like an apolitical space. You know, it's just a place to grow food and to raise kids or whatever. Like, I think it has to be connected to the world in, in its own way. Can you imagine anything we do being apolitical? <laughs> here, have more Coca-Cola. Uh, Man, we should come here more often. I mean, the time machine is not cheap. But this is worth it. And I think I maybe just saw a very young JLo walk by. Wow, that's pretty incredible. I only have one question here left that I want to ask before we're going to time shift back to 2021 and all of its horrors. And that is, if there was a commune, what would you do all day if you didn't have to work? That's also like a pretty hard question for me. I think it's just because I've worked in like a government job for a long time. It's like, what the heck would I do if I just didn't do that? I try to think of like the things that I'm good at. Again, I'm good at listening to people. I actually am good at using my hands, even though I don't really do anything with it. But I, I like to do manual labor here and there. But if it's like, I like doing manual labor when it's, you know, something that I want to do. Not that I'm like being made to do it. It's like a, a job that's making me do it. I feel like kind of a jack of all trades. I feel like in, in any space, it'd be cool if there was like a place for therapy. Like I would definitely be like the... I like active listening. I was always pretty good at that. I think I would be able to do that as well. Help fix people's computers. I like to cook. I like cooking drunk. I like cooking. <laughs> <laughs> These are all very fine uh, communal trades. I don't really want to say that they're jobs or work because it sounds yeah. like to you, these are valuable things, but it sounds like unalienated labor in these contexts. Like the idea of you like building things, but you like building things that suit you. Yeah. Or like, I'm sure you like mostly active listening to people who don't completely drown you in their feelings and problems. No emotional dumpers, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Only in small bursts, manageable bursts. Well, we know at least one professional brewer and then also a beautiful surf lawyer who makes his own ginger beer, which makes you smell a little bit like you woke up in a gutter, but it also gets the job done if that's what you're into. Yeah. So I think that we'll probably have some kind of talks with people about facilitating drunk cooking so that by the time that everything is falling apart around you and you're ready to get out, we will be there and there will be booze. I really just want to like learn things. And if I was in a commune and I didn't actually have to have a job because I was having all the basic needs met, I would just like to learn how to do another thing. Like, What would you like to learn? Just like toss up question. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'd, like Anything on your mind? You know, I'd like to build an engine or like construct a house. Stuff that would be useful that like I would use later, you know, like totally. learn to fish totally. in, like, a, in a different way and like learn how to prepare my own food because I'd never really done that, you know, and like growing stuff would be cool. I just never seem to have the time to do it now. That's And um, so it makes me not interested in doing it. But if I didn't have to worry about work, then... Hell yeah, I would learn how to do that. Well, and I think also it'd be sweet to have a library and just to have all of that time to like spend a whole afternoon reading in a sunbeam. But then we need to make sure that we talk an optometrist into coming along in one of these episodes or we'll end up with that Twilight Zone situation where your only pair of glasses break <laughs> and it's not fair. No. <laughs> yeah, we all wear glasses in this room. <laughs> we all live on a commune where we need glasses that we don't have. This is not my prescription. Whoa. 
Well, we're back in Amazonas. Whoa, that was weird. Fuck. Wow, well, I guess we know that that is an oral trigger for the time machine to do the riff from... <laughs> and all of our food is... To... Can, can we get this to go? I was in the middle of eating my plate and I feel weird. <laughs> yeah, we, we kept you talking too much. Well, you don't have to take it to go. Like, we could just chill. Do you want to just, like, hang out and you can eat it and we'll get ours to go? Yeah, yeah, let, let's do that. All right, well, that's all that we have time for today, everybody, but we're going to finish our meal, and we hope you had as much fun listening to us talk as we did talking. Bye! See you next time! See you. Meow! I never really thought about New York life until we published Seth Tabachman's War in the Neighborhood, and then I learned a lot about it really fast. I mean, I'd heard about White Flight, and like I think I had known a little bit about landlords bringing down their own apartment buildings to collect the insurance money in the 1970s and stuff, but really getting like a slice of life from Seth's comics kind of drew me in and like I learned about the boroughs and like I learned about the different cultural and ethnic and class groups that you could find in the Lower East Side. I was actually quite surprised. Should we go to the Lower East Side and cause a paradox by finding young Seth Bachman? <laughs> no! I'm just interested in like finding young me and like my family because we would be driving around in like our little Plymouth Voyager. Seriously though, no paradoxes. There's no money in the budget for it. Tell them.